Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is the internet entrepreneur Kevin Ryan. Kevin is the founder of Alley Corporation, a network of internet companies including Guild Group, the luxury e-commerce community, Tengen, an open source database, and The Business Insider, an online news site for the technology and media industries. Kevin was formerly the CEO of DoubleClick, an online advertising company that was eventually sold to Google for $3.5 billion. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'd like to start with a short history of e-commerce, which you helped to pioneer almost accidentally in 1995 when you were working at a company called United Media. Mm-hmm. What was the landscape of the Internet? So there was very little there. Don't forget, it was pre-Google. There were hardly any search engines. Uh, There was very little e-commerce, and there was very little advertising. So there's probably about $50 million worth of advertising, I think, in 1995, so Mm. tiny. Um, But what I could see in 1995, which changed my career, is it just, it was growing like crazy. And every single person I spoke to who'd gone online loved it. And all of a sudden, you could imagine, which is obvious now, that everyone would be online and every business would be online. United Media owned the rights to comic strips like Dilbert and Peanuts, you know, Snoopy. And the company traditionally tried selling these comic strips to newspapers, but you helped to create an online presence. What's the story there? So the story there is that uh, I had uh, started the Dilbert website. And so we really had a challenge because uh, we had trouble selling our comic strips all over the country. Uh, we couldn't go around because there's only one newspaper in every town. So we we said, look, if we could go directly to the consumer, it'd be great. It sounds obvious now. You go online. We set up the Dilbert website. And on the Dilbert website, sold advertising and set up an e-commerce site so we could sell T-shirts and ties and things like that. And it turned out to be a big success. And it really changed my career. Now, you approached the company, uh, United Media, and you said, why don't we start an online advertising company? But they denied you. And in that was this opportunity. Yeah, more the parent company, uh, Scripps, just was concerned, as, as all companies are, about cannibalizing their business. Because if the website was successful, then the business of selling the comic strip to the newspapers might go away. Uh, and so that's harmful. The other thing is that a lot of people weren't sure that the internet was going to be successful. I had more than one person tell me at the time, this could be the new CD-ROM, which had been hot three years before and then was fading. In retrospect, it's obvious. It wasn't uh, completely obvious at the time. And to what extent was your motivation for leaving just a personal one that, you know what, I've enjoyed my stay and now I'm looking for something else? I realized I was on this progression of wanting more and more control over what I did. Now I really wanted to be somewhere where, for better or worse, I could make the decisions and, uh, and move forward. You graduated from Yale in 1985, and you were an investment banker at Prudential, and you spent some time at Euro Disney prior, and then United Media. And then you leave to get involved in this desert of e-commerce, mm-hmm. which was quickly becoming more populated. And you you were introduced to DoubleClick. How did you find DoubleClick? So I found DoubleClick because I was looking around at many companies um, because I knew I'd made the decision I wanted to go work in the Internet full time. And I was thinking about starting a company that might have been similar to DoubleClick. And as I went out and met the, the guys who had started DoubleClick for part of my competitive research, I realized that they were very smart, both had engineering backgrounds, very technical, and had created something that I had no idea how to create. And I thought, wait a second, maybe I should partner with them. They had the same thought. And interestingly, 16 years later, I'm still working with one of those two guys in all of my startups. So it's been a long-term relationship for all three of us. 
can you describe briefly what DoubleClick sure. is? So the DoubleClick, um, the the ad serving company, was really a company that uh, provided a technology tool for businesses that allowed them to manage all the internet advertising. So if you were the Wall Street Journal, you used our tool to serve up dynamically a, one ad for you and different ad for me, even though we show up on the same page. The important thing there, let me give an example, a, a car company wants to advertise on Wall Street Journal. Because of the DoubleClick tool, they could make sure that their ads are only seen by people in the United States, not by someone who comes in from France. They don't want to reach the person in France because they don't sell the same car in France. You went to DoubleClick first as the president, and you became the CEO. And during that time, you had a real kind of seminal pivot point where you were um, switching from a predominantly sales-based advertising model to one of ad servicing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, because very few companies have ever made this transition. We had started by using our technology tool to create a network where we could sell advertising. So by 2000, we had 600 people worldwide selling advertising. And when we went public, it was 90% of our business. Mm -hmm. And within a year or two, though, I realized that I just didn't feel like that business was ultimately going to be profitable. Even we, though it was 90% <clears throat> of your revenue. Yeah. And so can you imagine as a public company trying to transition off 90% of your business? Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard for public shareholders to understand that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But our technology business kept growing. And I really thought I had long-term potential. And so uh, over a two-and-a-half-year period, we actually sold off and got out of the ad sales business and then transitioned into the technology business. Mm -hmm. It was very different, hundreds of engineers. Uh, and so that ultimately, I think, made the difference and was why DoubleClick was worth billions of dollars. When you did make the shift, were you feeling simultaneously that, yeah, this feels right? Because you, you went through a couple of rocky periods in that time. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it, it was a terrible period. It all, actually, what helped us was that the internet collapsed. How come? Uh, since everyone's stock was collapsing, everything looked terrible. It was hard to know what to compare things to, that, that uh, you thought, well, there's nothing to lose. When things are going badly, you are, feel bolder and make better decisions. You know, the challenge that many companies have today is that their business may be declining if they're in radio or if they're in magazines, but not so much that they feel the need to do something dramatic. And they just sort of slowly wither away. And that's the worst. Whereas in your situation, everything was dramatically collapsing. So what the heck? Exactly. You know, 70% of our clients went bankrupt in a two-year period. DoubleClick had, through your nine-year tenure, quite a volatile existence. You had seven rounds of layoffs. Yes. So first we went from zero to 2,000 people in four years. Then, you know, the seven rounds of layoffs. Uh, investigation by the FTC and by, uh, you know, Elliot Spitzer on privacy issues, which were later dropped, but still, you know, are very difficult to go through. Um, so, you know, beaten up in the press quite a bit. The stock price going from 120 or 130 down to $5 is a pretty ugly time period. You run into public shareholders who, you know, remind you all the time that they bought the stock at 80 and it's now 10. Just the fact that you point out that the entire sector went down doesn't make them feel any better. They tell you, well, I didn't buy the sector. I bought DoubleClick. I remember going on an earnings call once. And uh, as I'm talking, you can see in the chat groups on Yahoo Chat, you know, this, uh, Kevin is blathering on about some another quarterly miss or, you know, problem. Uh, when is it going to stop? You know, it's hard to fight through that. You stayed at DoubleClick for roughly nine years. At what point during that period were you feeling ready to move on? By every measure, except for, uh, you know, the stock price, 
things were great. Mm. So once we right-sized the business and we're building, we were enormously profitable. Completely separate to that, I felt like after being there nine years, I feel like I should have uh, left after seven and a half years, only because just for me, I need more variety. What were you flirting with doing? Uh, you know, even though you were still at the company, mm-hmm. what did you think you wanted to do afterwards? I hadn't, I hadn't crystallized my thinking at year eight. At, by year nine, I realized there were sort of three choices. One would be to go run another large internet company in New York, but that didn't actually exist. Double was by far the biggest company. Second would have been to go more on the financial side of setting up a VC firm or a private equity firm. So I thought about that. And the third would be to start, uh, you know, other internet companies. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the internet entrepreneur, Kevin Ryan. Kevin is the founder of Gilt Group, which started in 2007 as an invitation-only flash sale site for discounted luxury apparel and accessories for women. Kevin was a CEO of DoubleClick, an online advertising company that was eventually sold to Google for $3.5 billion. I'd like to talk about your childhood for a moment because, in a way, that period informed your professional life to some extent. Mm-hmm. You spent a number of years in Europe. Yep. What brought you to Europe? My family's from the Midwest. My father joined Caterpillar, the, the ultimate Midwest company, um, and they send their executives abroad. And so when I was uh, five, we went to Rome for two years, and then from there went to Geneva for five years. So uh, my childhood was really mostly in Geneva, and then when we came back in high school, we were outside of uh, Cleveland in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Was your father, it seems like he was a big company man, like a good soldier working for for Caterpillar. What is interesting, my father, who uh, up until a couple years ago had worked for just two companies in his his life, about 25 years for each one. Um, But all three of his sons are entrepreneurs, and all three of his sons have started at least one company. And it's it's so ironic to me that Caterpillar could not be more capital-intensive and heavy, palpable stuff. And you and your brother, one works for Facebook, are dealing with air. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) It's just... uh, it's a different time. You know, all of us like doing our own thing. And you can't start your own car company or your own, you know, heavy machinery company easily. But we grew up at a time when you could do some very interesting things and move very quickly uh, in the Internet space. And what about your mother? So my mother is very interesting. She has uh, four or five degrees and so had multiple careers. She went back to law school when I was in high school mm-hmm. uh, and then worked for 15 years. And now for the last 10 years has had yet another career. She uh, is involved in rare books. So has 16,000 books out of her apartment and uh, has an online internet business. And both of my parents today work probably 40 or 50 hours a week. I mentioned before that uh, your time in Europe helped to inform your professional life. And one example of that is when you were in France, you learned about uh, flash sales mm-hmm. in Europe, uh, which create an urgency and a scarcity for, for items. Talk to me about that, that exposure. You know, the, the largest internet company by far in France is called Vente Privée. And so everyone in France knows them and they do flash sales. And so it really just struck me in the United States as I was always thinking about new business ideas that uh, there had never been a successful internet idea in the United States that came from abroad. Mm-hmm. And this is just one. And I, I couldn't think of why it would work elsewhere but not work in the United States. So after I thought about this concept for a couple of weeks, I thought, well, I can't think of a good reason, so I'm going to start it myself. 
Vent Privé uh, has a partnership with American Express as it attempts to have a presence in the United States. It was founded by uh, the entrepreneur Jacques-Antoine Grandreau. Grandjean. Yeah, and they have about a billion dollar in sa- dollars in sales. Do you have a relationship with him, given that you are in similar businesses? Yeah, no, I've actually, we've never met, um, but I've certainly watched the business from afar uh, for a long time. You alluded to this before, but it happened in a reverse manner in a way. Most European companies get inspiration from U.S. internet mm-hmm. companies, and here you were seeing a European company and wanting to start one in the U.S. Yeah. Skype is another example. Yeah, actually, there, there are an increasing number. I mean, Spotify would be, would be the other example right now of a company uh. that's doing a billion dollars in revenue and started in Europe, a streaming, music streaming company. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said there aren't that many really interesting, innovative ideas coming out of Europe because they were probably five years behind. Now it's not the case. Uh, the internet scene in Europe, in particular in Berlin, is doing extraordinarily well. And so you're going to see more billion-dollar ideas come out of Europe. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the internet entrepreneur, Kevin Ryan. We'll hear more from Kevin coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is the internet entrepreneur, Kevin Ryan. Kevin is the founder of Alley Corporation, a network of internet companies including Guilt Group, the luxury e-commerce community, Tengen, an open source database, and the Business Insider, an online news site for the technology and media industries. Kevin was formerly the CEO of DoubleClick, an online advertising company that was eventually sold to Google for $3.5 billion. So you looked at Vent Privé and thought, well, why not do this in the United States? Mm -hmm. But then there was more of a a moment of clarity on 18th Street in New Mm -hmm. York City. What happened there? I I was walking by from my subway stop to the office, and I saw... 200 women waiting in line, and it wasn't that great a day. And so I thought, I just thought, what are they waiting for? This is a long line. And uh, they were waiting for a sample sale. We were waiting for half an hour, an hour, just to be able to get in and get clothing at 60% off. At Mark Jacobs. At Mark Jacobs. And all I could think of at the time was, wait a second, you know, there's 200 women here, but maybe there are hundreds of thousands of women somewhere in this country right now, like in the Midwest. It could be in Westchester, but they could also be literally a block away, you know, uh, and they just are working. And so they can't be in that line, although they're secretly thinking I'm in a boring meeting right now. I'd rather be in that line. <laughs> um, and I can bring it to them. I want to talk about the early days of mm-hmm. guilt. You know, it's, it was challenging uh, convincing fashion designers to sell their excess inventory to you because people don't want to publicly admit that they're selling their items at a discount. But who was the first fashion designer to jump on board with you? So uh, Zach Posen was the first sale. And so we had 50 dresses. Uh, and uh, and we had very few members. In the beginning, we had you know several thousand members, which were really just our friends and anyone we'd ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it was not everyone said yes. Lots of people said no in the beginning from the fashion community. But, uh, but having said that, a lot of them said yes. And what they liked about the model was that it was closed so mm-hmm. that you couldn't, your average consumer didn't know that this dress had been offered at 70% off. It was closed because the site was invitation only. Yeah. And there were just not that many people on the site. Mm-hmm. So it was quite, quite private. It was really very similar to 
a private sale if you did it, uh, you know, in a warehouse and invited your friends. Mm. Now, you mentioned Zach Posen, the fashion designer, but it was actually Zach Posen's mother who helps him run the company, who who had confidence in you to do this. It absolutely was. And she was at my house last night. And we always feel loyal to both to her and to the brand Mm -hmm. for being the first sale for us. So in addition to having buy-in from the fashion community little by little, you were also helped by the downturn uh, in 2008. How come? To some degree. People always think that we started in the downturn, and they forget that our first nine months, when the company just exploded, mm-hmm. was during uh, not during the downturn at all. It was before Lehman Brothers had crashed. And so it was growing like crazy. But no question, in a downturn, there are more, there's, there are more inventory available. And so sometimes it's easier to get uh, inventory. But it's counterbalanced by there are some people who shop less in a downturn. You know, we've, we've had consumers call you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, and say, my husband lost his job. I'm going to close down my account because I just can't buy anything else. You are a founder of Guild Group. In addition to a few other folks, a large team gets mm-hmm. this kind of top billing. In, in addition to you, there's Alexis Maybank and Alexandra Wilkis-Wilson mm-hmm. and, and Dwight Merriman. And Mike Brzezik and Fong. You, though, came up with the idea, yeah. and your first hire were computer engineers. Yeah. Mike and Fong. Mm-hmm. Oh, because... Once you have the idea, you think, okay, what is going to take the longest period of time? You sort of back into what you need. And so building the site takes longer than actually getting the merchandise. So I went out and hired Mike. Uh, Mike found Fong. And then a couple months later, uh, brought Alexis on board. And a couple months after that, brought Alexandra on board. At this point, you're doing several hundred million dollars in revenue, and and as a much larger company, you have you know different challenges, uh, and you know there's inventory and logistical issues. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Amazon five years mm-hmm. into their life to some degree when they've had fulfillment hiccups or challenges. In what way have you thought of Amazon as some type of benchmark? Yeah, no, we we think of Amazon all the time, and I think Amazon and I think Jeff Bezos uh, is the greatest internet CEO out there. We've been lucky, you know, we haven't had uh, distribution problems at all. And that can bring down companies. And it was one of the things I was very nervous about when I launched it, especially since I had no background in it myself. But uh, we have a fantastic facility. Costs are down. So that's a real uh, strength for us. Hmm. In fact, to the point where Many brands have approached us and asked us if we would take over their e-commerce operations. This mm-hmm. is one of the things we think about long term is whether we should add that to our business. You have started a, a men's brand on the site, Park and Bond. It reminds me of there was this New York Times article about the death of the cyber flaneur. You know, a flaneur is somebody who likes to browse and mm-hmm. walk along the sidewalks of Paris. And now the Internet has become so search-oriented. You're on a mission for shoes, and you go to Zappos, and you buy those shoes. And this is such a generality, but men are considered more to be, you know, very search oriented, whereas women are more kind of the browsing type. But this line, this retailing line is kind of, um, you know, bringing back the flaneurs, turning men into a flaneur to some degree. Have you thought about that kind of behaviorally, how you are affecting, uh, you know, the the behavioral psychology Mm -hmm. a little bit? Well, I think one of the interesting things about guilt is that, um, you know, most e-commerce sites uh, historically are based on search. So you go to Amazon, you know what you're looking for. You don't just m- wander around. And Guilt did not have search. You had to rely on us showing you interesting things. And the key was not to show you too much. Because if I show you 10,000 white shirts, it's, it's confusing. Uh, or as I show you just three and they're great, you'll probably choose one. Um, so Park and Bond is really closer to a department store. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that 
men in particular would, would say, you know, I love guilt. I've been on there and we have a huge business. But once in a while, I just need a pair of black socks or I need a shirt. And you may have it that day, but you may not. So I'd love to have both things available, the opportunistic purchase and then the directed purchase as well. And I also want to take advantage of the fact that, you know, as of a year ago, there were no men's department stores, uh, you know, anywhere. When you think about it, they're all subsets of women's department stores. Uh, And so I think there's an opportunity to build something that's very big. One of the characteristics of Guild Group is you know the profile of the user uh, whom you've invited, and you show them certain certain items. How do you make use of that data? How are you able to manipulate that? So this is one of the most interesting things we do at um, at Guilt, and is one of the reasons that online uh, has advantages over a traditional store. You know, if you and I go into a department store, we're obviously going to see the same thing. But in fact, you know, if someone knew each one of us, you would have shown different clothing to you than to me. Most people don't realize on guilt every day I actually see a different site than you do. I have different sales that are shown to me. My email is different than you because we've prioritized some sales for me, in the, but different ones for you. And how are you learning that from me? I'm doing that because when you have a site that uh, where you have to sign in, it means that we have a record of every single site, every single page you've ever looked at on guilt. doesn't matter what computer you're on. But as long as you're signing into guilt, so we can see that you you, know, you have size eight uh, shoes, or we can see correlations between you know this brand and another brand. So over time, what I really want to do, and we're only 20% of the way there, is really have your own personal site and really only show you 10 things, but they're the right 10 things. So I have full-time teams on this, just building algorithms. I wonder if it will ever go too far where people don't want the personalization to some extent. You can also turn it off if you want to. But where people get uncomfortable, which is something that we don't do, but you can comfortable if your data is being shared to other places you don't know. So as long as it's creating a better shopping experience for you on the site, then it's beneficial. You are part of a lot of sea changes going mm-hmm. on, whether it's in the mobile space or in bricks and mortar retail. What impact is e-commerce having on, on mobile, for example? Yeah, so what you're starting to see across the board is that the the, the mobile uh, percentage of total is just growing dramatically. So within a period of five, four years, it'll go from zero to probably 60% of all purchases. So what you're saying is instead of people buying items on their computers, they're yeah. buying them from their iPhones or their PDAs. Yeah. And so what you're now starting to see are things that are adapted purely for the iPhone or the iPad. And and, and I, I can say that I think the best shopping experience for Guilt is actually on the iPad because the resolution is so good, because you can do some things with the screen and your fingers that you couldn't do elsewhere. You can drag and drop. Um, so it's a remarkable experience. And it's to think that uh, I was in a meeting earlier today where we referred to um, the, the website to us as being something like the, you know, the the old site or the traditional site huh. uh, already. It's almost becoming traditional media. Not to speak of the, the Nordstroms and the Macy's and the mm-hmm. Bloomingdale's of the world. What's to happen uh, with real estate? So I don't think that that goes away. I think what's happening is all of the growth is being sucked out of the retail space and it's going online. So obviously if there's $200 billion worth of retail purchases occurring online, that would have occurred in a store. You know, and that happened within 10 years, and 200 billion is not insignificant. So that's why Nordstrom's is buying mm-hmm. a hot look. Hot look, and just invested in bonobos. Hot look being a competitor to guilt. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think in general, what we're always seeing is the same pattern that we saw with the New York Times or Time Warner or the department stores is the traditional players are moving slower, and they're moving slower than they should because in the beginning it doesn't seem profitable. And they do a little bit and they feel good about it, but they're never the leaders. No one ever says, 
that site from a department store is the best site I've ever seen. They're not aggressive enough generally to buy anyone, so they just sort of fall behind a little bit. The irony always is, and we've seen it every time, that it is better to not have a traditional store or a traditional magazine to be successful online. You think it would give you a big advantage, but in fact, you see every time that it slows you down because you just can't start thinking with a new mentality because you're so worried about ad pages in your magazine. You're worried about cannibalization. You know, you're worried about your store. And so that's where your energy goes. And that creates opportunities for people like me. And that brings us full circle to United Media, which was afraid to invest in Dilbert.com further. Absolutely. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Kevin Ryan, the founder of a network of internet companies, including the Business Insider, an online news site for the technology and media industries, TenGen, an open source database company, and the Gilt Group, a luxury e-commerce company. In addition to Gilt, uh, another company you've launched is TenGen, mm-hmm. uh, which is an open source database company. And the product that you offer is it MongoDB. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what this company does? Sure. So this is obviously completely different than Gilt. Uh, It's a very, very technical product. And what it is, is it's an open source database. So it's the core database that many, many companies uh, use out there. Probably 10,000 companies are using this around the world. Such as? So, uh, you know, there are companies like uh, eBay or Disney or AOL or, um, you know, Groupon. Uh, These are all companies that use it in some form, Foursquare. There are security agencies, governments around the world, uh, startups everywhere. Now, what exactly does it do? It stores data. So every single site uh, needs at least one database, but generally multiple databases, to store either traffic information, customer information, anything they're capturing. And so uh, this is just easier, faster, allows you to manipulate your data very quickly. And open source so that others can contribute to the the betterment of the database. Exactly. And so it is open source, which means that it's free for uh, anyone to download. And then we get paid because many companies would like to have support uh, or training. Uh, once you're once you become dependent on the on the database, you really need to make sure that if there's a problem, like you do something wrong, you want to be able to call us so we can fix that and fix it pretty quickly. How did you come up with the idea for TenGen? So this is another example of a pivot. So uh, you know when we came up with this, and Dwight Merriman, who's been my partner in all these businesses, is really the driver uh, of this. He has a technical background, and he and Elliot Horowitz have been doing most of the work on this. And the idea, in the beginning, we thought that cloud computing was a fundamental tr- trend, and so we were building out many components. Uh, of which the database is one, to build a cloud computing business. And then we realized that the uh, database was just doing extremely well, that there were some breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we decided to actually focus more on the database and not on the other things. Dwight Merriman features prominently in your life as a Mm -hmm. co-founder. What is he like? So Dwight is, uh, as you can imagine, incredibly smart, Uh, someone who's very technical, someone who really still codes three or four hours a day. What makes Dwight different than most technical co-founders is he is, in, is incredibly brilliant on the business side as well. Now, he doesn't actually like to do all these things. Like, you know, if I said to him, why don't you come to a party where we can meet lots of customers? He doesn't really like to do that that much. Mm, he'd but, rather send me. But he's not in a hole from a business perspective. Oh, not at all. But I end up being much more frontward facing. Right. And Dwight, I argue sometimes, is the brains behind the operation. And I'm just the looks. <gasps> now, everyone laughs at that uh, for good reason. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Because you're so handsome and charming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's what makes it funny for them because I'm not. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Dwight actually is the brains behind uh, many of the products that we've developed. Where is he from? He's actually from Ohio. 
Actually, the third co-founder of DoubleClick was uh, was from Ohio as well. So what is it about the Midwest, you think? <laughs> I think it may be a coincidence. There are smart people everywhere. But uh, but it, it's funny that a lot of the people uh, in the companies I've started have ended up being from the Midwest. Dwight Merriman, anything else there? I'm kind of intrigued by him. Yeah, no, Dwight... Uh, so one of the things I about Dwight is uh, as of 15 years ago, he didn't know anything about wine. Mm. Uh, I don't think he'd ever had a lot of wine before coming to New York. And now he is you know, one of the collectors of wine and one of the most knowledgeable people about wine. And in fact, on top of that, has actually opened a restaurant, which is, and you can quote me on this, the best restaurant in all of New York City. It's called Aterra. Uh, there's no menu. It's one of the most brilliant chefs uh, in the country. It's only 17 seats, like El Bulli in mm-hmm. Spain, mm-hmm. Uh, where you get multiple courses. And I would say three quarters of the things I had there, I've never had anywhere else. You're talking about Dwight being the most incredible uh, you know, engineer, mm-hmm. and he's American, which mm-hmm. is striking to me because most of those minds are coming from overseas. Yeah. Uh, do you think at all from a policy perspective about um, what can be changed to facilitate that? The single thing I would like government at the national level to do is to be more flexible on immigration. And it is absolutely crazy today that there are unbelievably talented people in computer science who live in Pakistan or anywhere in the world, but yet can't come into the United States because they would you know, join a company like ours and maybe eventually spin off and start their own company and create huge value. And we're keeping them out of the country. And all that does is mean that companies will start I will outsource more and more because you have to go where the people are. There are only so many talented computer science graduates. And uh, the question is, as a country, do we want jobs here or do we want them elsewhere? You've been increasingly active in New York government. Mm-hmm. You're an advisor to Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bloomberg. Your company is called Alley Corporation mm-hmm. for Silicon yeah. Alley, New York. What is your, your allegiance to New York City? Yeah, so I feel very passionate about one, the success that, um, that that New York is having in the tech world. My companies have all been located here. And so uh, it's, it's gratifying to see that, for example, people who worked at DoubleClick 10 years ago who have then gone on to start other companies that have been extremely successful um, or have gone on to be venture capitalists and are investing in other companies. And so you're watching this ecosystem get built up 30 years behind Silicon Valley. But uh, I think you're going to see in certain subsectors of the Internet that New York is much more important than Silicon Valley is, actually. How come? Because um, you've got to think of the Internet's not just one industry. So, for example, if you're starting Gilt and you need people who've, who are buyers, who've, who have 10 years buying merchandise and know the women's market, you can't start that company you know, in Pittsburgh. You've got to start that company in New York. When I started Business Insider, it needed to be in New York. There are more business journalists here than there are anywhere else. Uh, if you want to start a music company, yeah, it's actually here in New York or L.A. DoubleClick needed to be in New York because the ad agencies are all here. So I think in all those subsectors, you're going to see New York be the leader, you know, 10 years from now in many parts of the Internet. Silicon Valley was very important, and the word silicon is crucial, uh, because it was, you know, for making chips, they have all the talent there. And, uh, but that's actually not really part of the industry I'm in. I wonder if we should call it something else, Alley. What is it? Well, we, we a bunch of us were part of the sort of using Silicon Alley early on, uh, so uh, I don't think we have a better one. But it is it is a it is a good point. In addition to launching all these companies, you um, you exercise mm-hmm. uh, frequently. What kind of exercise do you do? Yeah, so I've always done a lot of different sports. Uh, big skier, having grown grown up in Switzerland, I do triathlons every year. So probably the quirkiest thing that I'm known for there is I'm a competitive ping pong player. Uh, I have a ping pong table at home, and I even uh, play with friends and even will sometimes have 
a uh, professional coach uh, come over, but uh, play with a guy called uh, Musa, who was in the Olympics uh, 15 years ago. One of the things that uh, I am known for is, is maintaining a good overall balance in my life. You know, I take my kids to school three days a week. Uh, I've always taken at least five weeks vacation, even when I was doing startups, even when we were going public, things like that. Um, and I always stay in shape. Startups can be very stressful. You know, you have a bad day. Rather than kicking the cat, you know, going for a, a six-mile run is a better way of, you know, letting go. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. My guest has been the internet entrepreneur Kevin Ryan. Coming up, we'll hear from Fred Swanaker, founder of African Leadership Academy, a school focused on training Africa's future leaders. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. 